Good morning. We are on a series of wonderful words. And so this morning, our wonderful word is um, going to be the Lord. And you can see that our title is, Is God the Lord of Your Life? It's a question, not a statement. And it's the question that I want us each to ask ourselves throughout the whole service and throughout the whole sermon. Is God the Lord of my life? And you would say, well, I'm a Christian. I've put my faith in Christ. I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. I'll live with him someday. But I do believe that it is easy for other things in our lives to creep in and still take the place that only God should have in our lives. Would you say that's easy in your life? You don't have to tell me right now, but ask yourself, it is easy. It's easy for me. I know that. And I I always like to assume I'm normal. Um, So I assume other people struggle with that at times where the things of this world begin to creep into areas that they should not creep into. And God deserves to be Lord of our lives. And we're going to look at what that means. And often when we talk about terms, and this is a theological term, the Lord, what does Lord mean? What does it mean when we talk about God being the Lord and the Lord of our lives? And sometimes we can think, oh, that's for like really smart theologians who write big books and and it can come across maybe sometimes dry or cold or it has no application to my life but this morning I would I would challenge you that that's the opposite from the truth and we are going to look at a little bit of understanding and knowledge of what this word means but we're really going to look this morning and my goal is to look at what this word means not just theologically like as in academically but what does it mean and how does it impact our lives and my challenge would be is that we would see by the end of the message that we need God to be lord of our lives not that just we should have him that's true but that our hearts and the spirit working within us would say, I need him to be. And then secondly, that God not only needs to be Lord of my life, but he absolutely deserves to be. He deserves to be because he is good. And so we will see that um, as we go through. But we are gonna start with a little bit of introduction of what does it mean in your Bible when it says Lord? Because those of you who maybe know, when it says Lord, it can mean two really, two words. It could mean a few others. But for the sake of when it's mentioned to be God as the Lord, we are just gonna look at two words this morning. And so words for Lord, these are words in the Old Testament. The first one is just normal word that they used to call God, and a lot of times they still would. Um, in the Old Testament, they call him Adonai, which is the Lord. And you would see it would be spelled like that in your Bible, L-O-R-D, capital L, but lowercase O-R-D. And that's going to be different from the other word. And that just means generally, um, the definition would be a general term for someone who has authority. Now, when it's referring to, the, to God, they put a capital L. When it would be referring to another person, they would just put a lower case L. Okay? So that just means someone who has authority over uh, another person. It's used for God 638 of the 7,266 times in the Bible. This is the word you'd get. Okay? There's another name for the, Lord, for the Lord, and it's a Hebrew word, and that is the one that maybe you would know better, Yahweh. 
right? And this is how it would be spelled in your Bible. If it's, if it's the word Yahweh, you don't have to like go and look up the Hebrew. You'll know because of the way it's spelled. Capital L, capital O-R-D, but the O-R-D are a little bit smaller font, okay? So sometimes you can read over it and you may not even notice because the way our brains work, we just read it and we don't even think about it. That's a little different. There's four capital letters all in a row. And we don't do that in English very often. Um, but that will tell you that that's Yahweh. And Yahweh is the proper name for God. And it means I am who I am. And you, if you know the Bible, you probably know the first time that that was ever used. And this name is used 6,482 times, about three quarters or more of the times that that, that Lord is used for God in, in the Old Testament. And so obviously this is what says the preferred name, if you wanna say that, because God uses that much more for himself in his word his proper name, Yahweh. And that's the word we're really gonna look at this morning. Um, but before we get into the first time he, he talks about that, we wanna say, what does it mean I am who I am? What does that mean to us? And really what it's saying there is he's talking about his self-sufficiency. It's one phrase that talks about, makes God different than any other being, right? I am who I am. None of us could say that about ourselves. It doesn't describe me. I am not who I am. I am dependent on other things. I am dependent on God. I am dependent on other people at times. I am a dependent person because when I can't breathe on my own. I can't have my heart beat on my own. I can't, I can't um, let gravity work on me so that I stay on the ground and don't go flying up into space. That's not me. I don't control that. I am not who I am. I am who God made me. But God is not that way at all. God is who he is because nobody made him and he has no dependency on anybody or anything. He is completely independent. He has nothing that holds him back. He has no limitations, but simply the ones he puts on himself because of who he is. If he ever limits himself, it's not because somebody else has limited him. It's because he's chosen to limit himself in certain areas because he's God and it's in his character to do that at times. So this word can also seem a little bit dry, but we see as we look it up in um, the first time it's mentioned, the first time God presents himself to his people as Yahweh, his proper name. And it's in Exodus chapter three. And in Exodus chapter three, most of you probably know, this is where Moses, who'd been away from, from Egypt for 40 years after he killed uh, an Egyptian uh, slave master and he killed him and, and he was in a bad place. Not only did he kill the Egyptians, who were obviously the people over his Jewish people, but he also did not make friends, which he probably thought. He's like, oh, my Jewish people, the people I'm actually supposed to, like, those are my people. He thought he'd make them happy probably, but instead they're like, what do you think's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen now that one of the Egyptians who is our, our slave leader, now that he dies, do you think they're going to like, that's going to be better for us? So they're mad at him. So what does he do? He runs away and God uses that time 40 years in the wilderness for God to, to build him up and to disciple him for one purpose. And that one purpose was that he would take Moses to deliver his people from the grips of Egypt, these, this, this slavery that they'd been in for 400 years. And imagine being in Moses' position. I mean, imagine first of all thinking, I've got to go to the Pharaoh 
probably the most powerful man in the world at this time. And I've got to say, let your slaves go who have pretty much built one of the strongest nations at that time. You're not free, but your labor force who has done all this and made you very powerful and built all these things. Yeah, just let them go. Why? Because they want to worship their God and they can't do it here. How do you think that's going to go over? Not too well, okay? This guy has kept them in bondage and him and his, his, the, the people before him and kept them, these people in bondage for 400 years. This is something they were pretty used to, right? And they liked the arrangement. And it really didn't make sense to just let them go. What's the benefit for us? But Moses had another issue before he even got to that issue. And this is where God introduces himself. It says in verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel, see Moses had to worry about what about my own people? Why should they follow me? You remember Moses, who was he? He, got a, he was a Jewish man, but he got adopted into the Egyptian family, right? Who was part of Pharaoh's family. So he didn't grow up Jewish in a sense. He grew up Egyptian, and so this guy who, who he, didn't, he wasn't a slave. He never probably was whipped. He was never forced to like push himself to like almost death. He was never like told you can't worship your God the way you want to. Why? Because he grew up privileged. And you're going to tell me that guy's going to come into his people and be like, you need to follow me. I can get you out of here. Think his people were, would really respond well? Moses didn't think so. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I say to them? Right? He's like, what am I going to say? If they ask me, what's his name? I kind of wonder, and I, we don't know. I kind of wonder what he thought they would ask that. It'd be like, do you even know our God? You're Egyptian. You may look like us, but we know how you were raised. Do you even know our God? And what does God say to him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I, ha I am has sent me to you. He gave them his proper name. It was the first time that we have recorded in the Bible that this was given to him. And this name was a name that has, it shows who God is in a very simple and efficient way. And isn't that the way God interacts with humans? He brings down his glory that we could never understand in all of our lives, no matter how much we try. And he brings it down in a bite-sized form that we can, to at least some degree, we can understand. Right? He brings himself down to us because we could never come to him. And he says, I am who I am. I am God who has no beginning and has no ending. I have no dependency on anything or anybody. I'm God. I am the Lord. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God gives us his proper name. And, and that may seem like a small thing sitting here, but have you ever known somebody um, and maybe you, you didn't know them well, but you've heard of them and you respect them from afar. And then someday they come up to you and they're like, hey, let me introduce myself to you. My name is, boom. And they give you their name. 
And it changes your relationship, doesn't it? Having a first name basis, a proper name for that person, and now you're close with them. And that's what this name did for God's people, and it does for us today. When we see the name the Lord, Yahweh, we should realize that's a special thing that God allows us to speak his name, to know his name. I kind of think of it as like, you know, I don't know if you ever had your kids who've ever used your first name to you. How'd that go over, right? How'd that go over? Why? Because there's an honor and you're like, whoa, I'm dad. I'm mom. I am not Dan or Brenda. Not to you, right? But God introduces himself, even though he is the God, he is Lord, he is our authority, he is our creator, and he says, but I'm also Yahweh to you. Why? Not to bring himself down in his lack of authority in our lives, but to show that he wants relationship. This is not a word that is dry or, or cold. In fact, in fact J.I. Packer, he has a great quote. I, I don't normally do a lot of quotes. I'm not good at reading other people's, but I couldn't say it any better than he could, so I figured I'd just quote him. It says, this verb donates a being that is dynamic and energetic, not static and frozen. God's being is a state, not of rest, but of activity. God's phrase name is thus a proclamation of his sovereign self-sufficiency and self-consistency. He is free and independent. He acts as he pleases. He does what he wills, what he purposes and promises that he also performs. In one word, in his name, it means all of those things and many more. That if God wants to do something, he can and he has every right and he's righteous to do it. None of us can say that. It makes God completely different and completely set apart. We use the word holy. He's completely different than who we are. So now that we've set that kind of the basic knowledge of who God is and what Lord means, we're going to look at a passage, the one we read, Psalm 145, and we're going to look at how do we interact with that on a daily basis? How should we respond to God being the Lord? That this, this being, this God, who if we put our faith in what his son did so that we could have a relationship with him, is Lord of our lives. What does that look like and how do we keep him as Lord of our lives? The first thing I would say is that we need God to be the Lord of our lives. In verse 1 of chapter Psalm 145, it says, A song of praise of David. It's one of David's last psalms that we have recorded, at least. It says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Notice what he says here. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and in his greatness is unsearchable. Notice what he says that we need God to be Lord of our life daily. How do you do that? He uses three words. He uses the word extol, bless, and praise. He doesn't say, you need to know more about me. Do we need to know more about him? Yes. But he doesn't say that. He says, he uses the word extol, which means to raise up with your words and your life to raise God up in your speech and in your life, to say, God, the way I talk and what I do, I wanted to raise you up to make you big and higher in my life and in the view of others around me. To bless him, it means to pronounce favor on. We get to pronounce favor on God. Yes, we say, God, because you are this way, I adore you. 
I look up to you. I worship you. I care about you. I honor you. And then the word praise, it just means to spotlight him, to like let all of the other things of life seem dark compared to how much I focus on who God is in my life. And I think this sets up a great and important and a necessary daily practice of spiritually coming to God's word and not just looking at God's word like it's some kind of spiritual self-help book. Often we go to God's word in our devotions and we say things like, and, and I'm not saying this is always wrong, but we say things like, well, I need to get something for my day. But really the key thing, you will get things for your day because when we know God and we worship him as Lord and we place him in that part of our lives that he is authority and he doesn't need me, but I completely need him, it will change our lives and we will live differently because of it. But often I think we skip over the part of worshiping him and knowing him and adoring who he is just for who he is. Because why would we live for God? We live for God because we love him and we respect him and we honor him. So then when he asks us to do things in the Bible that maybe are hard for us to trust him on, we do it because we love him and we honor him and we know he is the Lord and he is perfect. And so we come to God this way daily. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and forever. Every day I will bless you. So we go to God's word and we look at not just for how it's going to change my life, but we first look at just who God is. In a story, whether it's David, and in a story how God blesses him in his life, and we see not just David and his strength and his faith, but we see a God who gives David all of that strength. We see a God who, who, who takes that stone from his sling and kills a giant. That's not like, hey, you're, hurrah, let's be like David. No, let's be like David in the fact that we worship God and we depend on God and we trust him. David was a nobody just like me and you are nobodies. But with God, he can do the impossible. So we look to him and we adore him that even though this boy who was just a, just a young boy at the time and all, he was kind of not looked highly on in his culture at this point because he took care of the sheep and that was one of the lowest things you do. He was one of the youngest kids and so he got, you know, the last end of the straw on the, the chores. And yet God uses him in a miraculous way. Why? Not because David, but because God. So we go to scripture looking for that God and seeing him and just dwelling on who he is. And then he says um, in verse two and three, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and forever. What does that mean? It means that this is a practice that we should start in our lives now, but will not stop when we die. This will be something I believe that will be continued throughout eternity. When we go to heaven, what does it say in Revelation? When all of God's people see him, whether it's the angels or, or the, um, uh, I'm trying to think of in Revelation 4, how it says, uh, the people that, the guys that are sitting around his, his throne, what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That's what it's talking about. He's completely different from us. He's set apart and we worship him. And just dwelling on that alone will change us. 
and we'll do it forever. Why not start it now? It's not something we have to wait until we go to heaven. We can start at least a bit of it now because of our flesh and our sinful nature still in us. It will not be perfect, but it will be much better than not doing it at all because God is Lord and we need him to be the Lord of our lives every single day. And this is how we start by looking at who he is in his word and dwelling on him. Next, not only do we need to do it daily for ourselves, but he goes on in verse four, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. We need to be so consumed with the majesty of God that we can't help but pass it on. That's what he's talking about. When you know God, when you start to really become close to him and know him, not just here, but experientially, you start experiencing who he is in your life and seeing him change you through your love for him. You're gonna talk about it to others. You can't help it. And then in verse five, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and your wondrous works, I will meditate. He's saying, you can't pass along what you don't have yourself. I need to be meditating. So often as parents or grandparents or Sunday school teachers or pastors or whatever, we can get so caught up in telling everybody else how they need to love God, but then we don't do it ourselves because we're too busy trying to feed other people that we never take time to be fed and just dwell and commune with God. And then verses six and seven, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. When we accomplish the two first goals, other people will worship God because of what they've seen in us. That's what we call in the New Testament, the Great Commission right? That other people would be saved. They'd know God. They'd, they'd come to God as Lord of their lives by grace through faith in salvation. And they will glorify God better. That is we call making a disciple. So we have to evaluate our lives here. Is God Lord of my life? Am I doing these things? Am I personally, daily taking time to make God Lord of my life, to continue the effort it is to have spiritual practices in place in my life where I spend time in his word and I spend time in prayer? And, and, and then throughout the day when things come up, I have so much of God's word in me that when the pressures of life come, what comes out is God's word and prayer. And so I start thinking like him and I start loving him more and I start adoring him. And the things of this world, as the hymn says, they grow strangely dim. Things that were so important to us. We're like, if I can't have this God, I'm not gonna be happy. All of a sudden, those things don't seem as important to us because we find joy not in the things, but we find joy in the God who we're created for. What is the spiritual heritage that we are passing along in our lives? Yes, in our families, but what about in our church family? What would the children of Community Baptist Church say about you or me? Have we pushed them closer to Christ? Or do we just kind of stay to ourselves? What about our teenagers? I'm reading a book and there's doing research about why so many teenagers are leaving the church. And you know what connects teenagers back to the church after they graduate from high school? And this is my first week in youth group kind of being the youth leader again. So I'm saying this, it's kind of ironic. It's not a youth group. 
It's not the activities they do. It's not the special youth uh, Bible studies. It's none of that. You know what almost every one of those teens would say that has connected them back to the church? It's the connections, the personal relationships they have with other godly believers, adults, who have made an effort to be a part of their lives. It's people. It's not the programs, right? The program, we could have the best youth group program, but if we don't have a love for the teenagers, it doesn't matter. So what is the heritage we're leaving? Are we sharing what it means to have God be Lord of our lives? What are we passing down? We may pass down financial stability to our children, but if they have no spiritual stability, does it really matter? We may pass down academic excellence, but very little knowledge and understanding of who God is and what that means in our lives. Do we pass down a culture of earthly success, but no spiritual growth? Are we passing down a great example of the necessity of good daily habits of hygiene, yet we fail to exemplify the much needed daily habits of knowing God and communicating, communing with him in his word and in prayer? Both of those things are important. We want our kids to take showers, right? But the reality is, if our kids stink physically, but they're a sweet smell to God, what's more important? And it can be so easy to be like, go take a shower, do this, and we forget about the most important things. And I'm preaching to myself. I have four children. I get the responsibility, but we have to look at who God is. Is he Lord of our lives? And are we communicating that to the next generation? And then secondly, we go and we move on. Is he worth it? Why would we want to do this? This is hard. This is different. And I would encourage us that God absolutely deserves to be Lord of our lives. And we're going to see why in the next few verses, and we'll end fairly quickly. So we'll go through these verses pretty quick. First one, verses 8 through 13. God deserves to be Lord of our lives because he's love. God doesn't just say, hey, I'm a God who's in charge. You listen to me. He proves that he is a God who's in charge, but he also proves that he's a God who's in charge and he loves us. He's a good authority. Some of you have grown up in homes where, let's be honest, your parents, they were not good authorities. They were in charge of you, but maybe you didn't see a lot of love. And maybe you still struggle with that today. Your God is God because he is who he is. And part of who he is is love. And you never have to worry that what God calls you to or asks you to do, that is anything but loving to you. It's hard can be difficult, there can be hurt, but he does it all out of love. Verses eight through nine, we see that this love is who he is. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he's not just kind of loving, it says he's abounding in it. It means it just keeps coming. The more love we need, the more love he has. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. He's love in his character. That's important. His love doesn't change. Why? Because it's who he is. His love doesn't fluctuate. His love doesn't have expectations like we have expectations for other people. His love is perfect. But not only in his character is he love, 
in his practice, in his actions, he's love. Verses 10 through 13, all your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. Isn't that kind of a funny way to say it? And maybe it's only something we could say because of God and who he is. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. Normally we'd say, God, because of your works, we give thanks to you. But his works alone give thanks to him because he's God and he's loving. And all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. He never says something that he can't keep. He never promises something that he won't fulfill and he can never do anything but be kind in what he does. Does that mean he doesn't judge? No. Nope. Did you know that true love judges? Do you ever have a parent who completely lets their kid do whatever they absolutely want to do? Is that loving? No, right? We look at those kids and, and, and hopefully they're not our kids, right? Hopefully. Um, but we look at those kids like, let's say in Kroger and we're like, oh, that poor kid. He needs some discipline in his life, right? He needs to know boundaries, God is love in every way. He gives us boundaries. He gives us relationship. And we can say without question that he is faithful in all his words and he's kind in all his works. Parents, have you ever promised your something, something to your child and not been able to fulfill it? You had every intention of fulfilling it, right? But stuff just happens that you can't control. Maybe it's one of those things where you're like, son, I promise we're going to go fishing on Friday night, right? Right before dusk. But something comes up that you can't control. And as much as you hate to back out of it, you like, I have to do this. God never does that. You know that? God never promises something to us as his children that he won't fulfill. Why? Again, he has nothing he's dependent on. He has nothing that can then hold him in. We have things that hold us in. Our jobs, our financial resources, just being human, our physical health, God in our lives can hem us in and say, no, I don't want you to go to do that, right? There's a lot of things that can happen in our lives that can affect our promises. God's promises never fail because nothing can change him unless he desires it to be changed. And time doesn't matter. He knows exactly what's going to happen in the future because he, time doesn't hem him in. When he says, I'm going to do this for you someday, he's not saying, oh, this, I'm going to make it happen like we do as parents. He's saying it's already happened in his mind because in his, in his reality, because his reality isn't hemmed in by time, past, present, or future. He is who he is. But in all of that, in all of his power, he is kind in all his works. Have you been kind to your children in all your works? I have not. I have gotten frustrated. I've gotten annoyed. I've said things to my children that I shouldn't have said because I'm sinful and I have frailties and I have, I have sin that hems me in. God has none of that because he's perfect and he's righteous and he's holy. 
He's kind in all his works. And this is the God who needs to be and deserves to be Lord of our lives. He's worthy of that position. Then in verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. He's not only love, he is provider. Do you ever feel like that person in that verse, I'm falling, I'm hunched over, maybe not physically, but spiritually or socially or whatever. You just feel like you've been beaten down by life. And some of it may be your own fault that you've made decisions. And some of them it may not be. Some of it may just be life. And in that, God is love. But in that, God promises to provide. He upholds all who are falling. Have you ever had a child who just like is so tired, they can't even keep their eyes open and their head just kind of keeps like, you know? And what does a good parent do most of the time? Right? You try to like kind of brace them, support them, be like, it's okay, just go to sleep. That's God, what he does for us. He says, hey, let me put you to rest. Let me give you peace and comfort. And then there's times where you need strength and God raises us up when we feel completely beaten down and bent over in maybe our sin, maybe just hard things of life, maybe the way people treated us, things that are unfair, things that are unkind, things that are unjust, part of this world, but God says, I am there to hold you up, to straighten you up in your life. He provides for the weak. Verses 15 and 16, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. He provides also for not just the weak, but for the needy. We all have needs, whether we admit it or not. Those needs can be physical. Those needs are spiritual. Those needs are social. Those needs are relational. They could be so many needs that we have and God promises that when we call out to him, he'll provide for us. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. You know what this says? This isn't just to believers. Although I believe God does that and he does take care of his own. But he says every living thing, he satisfies those earthly desires of food and necessity. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. He is a provider of answered prayer. He says, call to me. Let me know what you're struggling with. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Have you ever cried to God? God, I don't know what else to do you're going to have to provide because I have seen myself for who I am in this situation and I am weak and I need you and you're the only one who can do this. That's the God who deserves to be Lord of your life. And in verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. He provides for those who need protection. 
he preserves you. All those who love him, he preserves. And all those who are against you, he will protect. You look through the book of Revelation because at times when we see places like in our in our uh, current events now, we see Afghanistan and we see Christian people, God's people, his followers, and we see them being abused. We see innocent women and children and all of that happening. And we're just like, God, where are you? And he says, but all the wicked he will destroy. And that is part of God's love too. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't look like it. And we don't understand it all the time. But you look at the book of Revelation and much of Revelation, God says over and over, this is coming true. And this is going to happen because I have, I have seen and I have heard all that has happened to my people, the blood that is shed, the things that have been, people have done to them. And it will come to fruition one day where God will take control and he will make all of those wrongs right. And will each of us answer for what God, what we have done for God and what he has done in our lives? The Bible also tells us that, as we said before, that what happens on this earth has very little value. Paul said in his word that I struggle and I, I, I do this, but it's just for a little while, right? The hardships of life, they're for a little while but the glories of heaven and spending an eternity with the God who I've grown close to, the God who's been Lord of my life, we can't even understand the, or grasp what that actually means in reality. But we can just, we can get a little taste of it each day when we go into his word and we see who he is. And we grow closer to him. And even though we have this separation because we're not actually with him yet physically, someday that will happen. The psalm ends with a verse that I think is a great verse that we end with today. It's verse 21. May this be the cry of our prayers. May this be of who we are in our lives. And may we make God Lord of our lives by spending daily time with him in his word and in prayer. May we say this together. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are Lord. God, so often we want to take that place in our own lives because we think we know what's best. We want what we want and we struggle to give that place to you. God, when you're doing everything the way we want it to, we're good. But as soon as you take something or refuse something that we think we should have, God, it is so easy to take that place and interject ourselves. God, I pray whatever area of our lives we're doing that right now, that we would, the Spirit would give conviction there and that we would respond to you in repentance, that we turn from our wicked ways and we turn to you, that we give you this position that you deserve to be the ultimate authority of our lives because you are who you are. May we fear you God, in the sense that how would we ever fight someone who is like you? How could we ever fight? How could we ever expect to win or to gain advantage over you by taking control of our own lives? God, may we submit to your authority. And when we humble ourselves, you promise to raise us up. God, we thank you for your character, for who you are. 
for how you treat us. Your grace is so amazing. We deserve nothing good from you. And you've given us all good things. You've been kind to us and good in all your ways. May we glorify you as we finish the service with song. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.